Hello, everybody. How are you doing today? Good. My name is Josh Pollard. I am the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, before we jump into it, uh, will you pray with me? Uh, Father of the universe, God, we come to you today with um, joy, with reverence, um, with a deep desire to know you. We know that you are the source of all truth. Uh, you're the only one that knows us truly, and we just ask that today you would teach us who we are and who you are so that we can live lives that glorify you and not ourselves. Uh, we ask that you would take mercy on us as we resist you uh, as often as we can for some reason. We ask that you would help us not do that. We ask that you would give us soft hearts that your word would sink deeply into uh, and that your, uh, your truth would grow and bear fruit. We praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so, church. Happy to be here with you today. Today we are wrapping up our study on uh, the fifth chapter of the book of John, John chapter 5, and this particular study has been called Worthy, which I think is a uh, really good title. You know, one of our church's core values is that we put God first. We say that all the time. You can see it on one of the signs out in the lobby out there, and I think that if we say we put God first, uh, it assumes that we've already answered the question of if Jesus is worthy to be put first, worthy, right? That's where that comes from. Is he worthy of our life's devotion, uh, or is he just a fairy tale for sensitive people, you know? Karl Marx once famously said that religion, all religion, is the opium of the masses, right? Just keeping these suffering people who live pointless lives numb, dangling this thing called hope out in front of them so they can, you know, struggle on for a few more years, just trudge forward. Is that true? How do we know that's not true? How do we know that uh, we're not just embracing a lie because it makes us feel like the good guys? Well, that's why we're studying John chapter 5. So go ahead and grab your books, your Bibles. There's one under your chair in front of you. Uh, you can find John chapter 5 on page... 727. We're studying this particular part because here the Jewish leaders, much like many people today, do not believe Jesus is worthy of any devotion at all. They definitely don't think he is. Much like many people today, they thought he was a liar. They thought he was immoral. They thought he was plain evil, just downright evil, and they wanted to get rid of him. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to speak directly to those people that do not believe in him, directly to them. So as we study today, I want us as a church to consider our own doubts, because I think we all have times when we doubt. You know, maybe some of us here totally are on that, you know, on that side of the aisle. We don't think Jesus is worth much of our time, but for some reason we wound up here today. And others of us believe more today than we ever have in our whole lives because of whatever circumstance is going on. But I think if we're honest, it's never just a straight up and to the right graph of growth toward God. You know, it's waves. Christian life is waves of, of deep belief and then deep doubt sometimes. And we have to consider that seriously. I think if I'm honest, I have my own doubts. Have I dedicated my life's work to spreading a lie? Sometimes I wonder, am I peddling snake oil on stage? You know, I wonder that. I want to take it seriously. And uh, I come to chapters like John chapter 5, and I find encouragement there. So let's read. We're going to start in verse 31. 
Here we go. Verse 31, John chapter 5, it says this. If I testify, this is Jesus speaking, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Have you ever known somebody that went fishing all alone, they came back, they said they caught a 10-pound bass, and they had to let it go? In that case, they're employing this time-honored fishing technique called lying, probably. And that's what Jesus is kind of talking about here. He's saying, if I just tell you directly who I am, you're not going to believe me. You don't believe me. You've rejected that. The primary source. You don't listen. So then look at the other testimonies. What else supports my claim to be divine, to be the Son of God, to be sent from the Father to you? What else says it? He goes on. Verse 32 says, There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony is about, uh, about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that my Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. So at this point so far, they have rejected the testimony of Christ himself. They've rejected the testimony of other people, in this case, John the Baptist, who testifies about who Christ is. And now they're having to deal with their own experience with Christ's uh, signs, his, his uh, miracles, basically, that he's done right in front of them, right in front of their eyes, their own two eyes. How do they deal with that? So far in the book of John, up to this point, we've seen several signs of Christ described for us. And we've had the, uh, he's changed water into wine at the wedding in Cana to save this family from social shame. He has cleansed the temple, kicking out all these people that were selling sacrificial animals to poor people and probably ripping them off. He has healed an officer's child from a great distance. He has spoke to the woman at the well, restoring her. She was a social outcast. He has uh, raised a man who couldn't walk, and he made him walk, and he forgave his sins. And those are the signs that we've seen Jesus do so far in the book of John. And all of them are acts of mercy and compassion on needy people. Now, the Jews expected signs from the Messiah. They expected that. But they expected signs that were more like judgment against the Roman Empire that was oppressing the Jews at the time, not acts of mercy and kindness for unimportant people. So they didn't have eyes to see that. They didn't know how to look for that, which is why he can go on and say this about them. He says, and the father, you, uh, the father, verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now here, Christians, I think there's an important lesson to pick out of this, is that biblical study is extremely important for the Christian life, but it is not the goal. It is just a means. The goal is to come to the one that the scriptures testify about. So you can memorize whole books of the Bible and yet still not come to Christ. You can memorize the whole thing and not have the love for God in your hearts. So biblical study is an important part of Christian life, but don't measure your Christian life on how well you've been reading Scripture lately. Measure it on how well you've been coming to the one that the Scripture talks about. That's the measure of Christian life. It's very important, but it's not the goal. It's just a means to facilitate our goal of growing closer to Christ. So let's learn that quick lesson. He goes on, verse 45 
But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, you, uh, how are you going to believe what I say? All right, so to summarize uh, our passage today, they have rejected the testimony of Christ himself. Uh, they've rejected the testimony of John the Baptist, so that's other people. Um, they've rejected the work that Christ has done in front of them, the signs, the testimony of the Father speaking to the hearts of those who love him, the testimony of Scripture that speaks about him, the testimony of the Mosaic Law, that's Moses he's talking about, that gives structure to their whole lives and surrounds them. All of these different angles point toward Christ and support his claim to be from the Father, and yet they don't listen to it. And my question is, why? Why, in the face of so much support, so much evidence from so many different angles, do they not come to him to have life? And I think the answer is not a mystery. It's not hard to find. It's right there in the text. You see, in verse 40, verse 42, it says that they did not have the love of God in their hearts. And so they just refuse. They just refuse to come to him. It wasn't, a, it wasn't that there wasn't enough testimony. It's that in their hearts, they didn't come to him. They were too focused on getting this glory that comes from other people. I think I skipped a part. Did I skip a part, you guys? Oh, man. It's all right. We're going to do this on the fly then. Let's go back. Verse 41, that's okay. God knows what he's doing here. Verse 41, Jesus says this, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in, my own, uh, in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Okay, so this is an important section, and that's why I made sure to go back to it. I think that an important part of what we learn from today's passage is the idea of glory. Glory is an important word. Jesus uses it a lot. And I think that a good definition for glory helps us understand what he's saying. A good definition for the term glory is a presentation of something's worth, something's value. And here Jesus is saying, I don't get my value and my worth from people. I know my value, I know my worth, I know my glory comes from the Father. But people that don't believe in Jesus readily, they don't believe despite all the evidence, they readily accept what other people say is valuable and important without any evidence. They just accept it. You know, other people tell us how to be valuable and important. I think... Uh, our modern media is a perfect example of this. We have advertisers to tell us what we need and what, if we don't have it, we're not, we're not doing it right. We need that thing. We, we have news anchors to tell us what to be mad about. Right? We have mom blogs to tell us if we're good parents or not. And we just let them tell us, and we accept it. And it's very passive. Right? We sit, we watch YouTube, we look online, we just sit there and let it soak into us. It just comes, comes, comes. And we just accept it with no support. But it says here that the glory that comes only from God is something you must seek after. It's an active thing. It's the only one that's worth actively pursuing. So, 
But they refuse this. They refuse this glory that comes only from the Lord. Instead, they're so focused on getting this glory that comes from other people. And I think that when we compare the glory that comes from other people, the value they give us, the worth they give us, to the value that God gives us, the one we get from people is rather pitiful, I think. I think when really pressed, we are rather expendable to one another. We don't give each other very good value. Social media is a great example of this, right? We put all these posts, we put these pictures online to try and get these likes and these follows and YouTube views or whatever. And then, you know, we think that when we get all these supporters and these followers that it makes you valuable. This person is valued because they have so many followers. But what happens when you tire of that person, you just unfollow them and you just delete them, right? They're expendable. They're not that valuable. Uh, my friends and I in college, we used to play this game. It was called Facebook Roulette. And this is how you play. You can play. It's a great game. So you, one person would pick a letter and a number. And you go to your friends list. You go down to the names that start with that letter. And then you count down that many people. And whoever you land on, you just delete that person. That was really fun. I know. It's kind of cruel. But it gets you. It's kind of fun. You could do it with your phone contacts, too. It's really great. Um, you can play it on your way home. M, go for like M4. It usually gets their mom. That's what you're trying to go for. Get them in trouble. So they're expendable. Um, you know, think of your work. You know, you put all this time and effort into this company you're working at, and you think that your expertise and your hard work is adding value to this company and value to the lives of the people around you, right? You spend more time interacting with this, these people than you probably do your own family. But then one day comes and you don't fit their business model anymore, and what do they do? They right-size you, whatever that means, right? For who? And you go one day talking to these people all day, working side by side with all these people, and the next day, you never talk to them again. Totally gone. Because you're expendable to them. And they're to you. You've never called any of them. They're expendable. We don't give each other enough value. I think it happens in families, too. You know, you have this kid, you raise this kid up, you give them all the food and all the clothes they need, and you make sure they're educated and they grow and they get a job and start a family. And what do they do? They take the grandkids and move out of state. That's what I did. Right? You see, even the glory that we get from the people we love the most and the people that love us the most, it's rather pitiful when compared with the glory that only God can give us, the value that only He can give us. And while our friends and our family and our coworkers are all really important relationships to, to press into, they lack the power to tell us who we really are on a deeper level. And how valuable we are. Only God can do that through Jesus Christ when we don't refuse to come to him. So then the question becomes, well, how do I not refuse? How do people come to believe that Jesus is worthy of trust? How do they not confuse or refuse? And I think that the first step in not rejecting the evidence is to look at the evidence. You know, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had all this all this evidence from different angles, right? Primary sources in Jesus himself, secondary sources like John the Baptist, their own experience of his works, the scriptures, the law, all these different angles supporting his claim. But when it comes to modern day readers, we run into a little bit of an issue. It's that all those different angles of support for us are just one angle, right? It's just scripture. It's just one. And while well, it's an excellent source, some people don't find it convincing to say you should believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. They say it's circular reasoning. The Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. 
I can understand their issue, right? Well, Jesus, when he's talking to the Jewish leaders here, he says, if you don't believe the primary source, what other testimonies support my claim? So we can ask, what other testimonies in our lives right now support the claims of Scripture, the primary source? Which ones? Well, what I want to do today is because there are so many good sources we do have today, I can't give them all to you, but I want to give you my favorites. I want to tell you the ones that helps, some of the ones that have helped support and encourage my own personal faith. Uh, these might not be the same reasons that you are a Christian, but these are some of the reasons why I'm a Christian. And I can't go into a lot of detail on all these. I'm going to give you kind of the swoosh over the top of them. Yeah, that's a technical theological term, swoosh. Maybe write them down. You can look up more later. Um, okay, so if someone were to come to me and ask, Josh, why do you believe in Jesus? One of the ways I could answer that is that for me, it starts with a belief that there has to be a God. You know, traditionally, there are many philosophical arguments that are considered proofs of God. Uh, but one of the ones that I find most convincing personally is one called the first cause argument, which is part of what's known as the cosmological proof of God. And this cosmological proof in general, and specifically the first cause one, uh, was developed philosophically by Aristotle. And then it was later theologically developed by a guy named Thomas Aquinas. And the main point of the first cause proof kind of goes like this. Everything has a cause. Everything comes from somewhere, right? Nothing just spontaneously happens for no reason. There's always a reason behind everything. And if you follow that chain of causation back and back and back and back, eventually it's just logical that you come to something that wasn't caused, an uncaused cause, the first cause. Now, we would call that first uncaused cause that just always was God. And we could stop there, and many people do. And you wind up with something called deism. And if you're a deist, then you believe that, okay, I concede that there must have been a God, something that made everything. But I don't believe he meddles and he gets involved with what's going on. He just made everything. He made the creation. He pushed the go button and he backed away. That's called deism. A lot of people take that route. But I think that if we were to do that, we would leave evidence on the table basically, and we would ignore other things that are really important and true to mix into the picture. The best answer is the answer that includes the most evidence and explains the most of the evidence. So if we were a deist, we'd be leaving evidence out. We have to take in more. And the evidence I'm referring to here is the historical reliability of the transmission of the New Testament to our day. Basically, what that means is, is what we have written in the New Testament actually what the eyewitnesses wrote down? Or has it just been corrupted over the years by the church to make it say what we want it to say? And that's a charge that some people do bring. Well, to that I would answer that archaeologists have found, they find them all the time, ancient scriptures, basically old scrolls, uh, parchment, even clay tablets, things with parts of the New Testament written on them that are really old. We have some pieces that were written within a few decades, within the first century of when Jesus was walking on earth, when eyewitnesses could have been still alive. And we have those. We found those. And if you take all these different pieces of what we call manuscripts, these ancient pieces of the texts, 
uh, from the first few centuries of the church, and you add them all together, in just the original Greek, we have over 5,000 of them. 5,000 just in the original Greek. And we can study them, and if you, you look at them closely, you can see that what you have under your chair, just in English, but what you have is essentially identical to what the eyewitnesses wrote right there in the first century. We can see that. There's evidence. And then if we take another step, if we took all the other ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that were written in other languages besides Greek, we have Latin, we have Coptic, we have Ethiopian, all these other languages, we add those all together too. From the first few centuries of the church, we have over 24,000 items to study the text. And when you put those against today's modern text, that's how we got this, is that it is essentially identical to what was the eyewitness accounts. Now, to put that in perspective, the second closest runner-up to this is something called Homer's Iliad. So there's this guy, Homer. He wrote these things called the Iliad and the Odyssey, and they're kind of like a Bible for Greek gods. We'll just call it that, okay? Um, Homer wrote the Iliad, which is one we have more support for. It gets second place. He wrote it around the year 800 B.C., and the events in the Iliad are said to have taken place in around the year 1200 B.C. So there's a 400-year gap between when it supposedly happened and when Homer first wrote it down. And then we have about 1,000 total manuscripts supporting that. Okay? Now, of those, not 24,000, 1,000. Now, of those 1,000 manuscripts, the oldest one we have, the closest one to the original written one, was from the, around the year... Uh, 300, 2 to 300 A.D., okay? So that's about the 3rd century. So we have about a 1,000-year gap from when Homer first wrote it to when we have our oldest one. So it's 400 years between the event and the writing, another 1,000 between the writing and the oldest version we have. And that is the second-place winner for best-supported historical event, ancient historical event. And compared to the New Testament, which has 24,000, some that we have in our possession from within decades of it happening, when it was written down just before that, and it actually happened just before that, it is astounding how well-supported the New Testament is as a historical document. It is not an exaggeration at all to say the New Testament is by far the most historically reliable collection of texts we have as a world civilization. By far. Now, let's take that and ask the next question. The next question is to say, okay, we have a good representation of what the eyewitnesses wrote down. But what do they write down? Does it make sense? Does it stand up to the tests that you would put any other historical event to? Or is it nonsense? Is it garbage? Is it made up? Well, for that, what encourages my faith is the historical reliability of the testament of the resurrection of Christ, his actual resurrection. The resurrection of Christ has been extremely well supported by the eyewitness accounts when you put it to almost any test that an investigator would put it to. One, one of the supports that most encourages my faith is that out of the 11 remaining disciples, don't count Judas, he died, right? Don't count Judas. But out of the 11, 10 of them were brutally executed for their faith. Brutally. We're talking beheaded, burned at the stake, crucified upside down, stuff like that. The last one was exiled to an island, and he died out there. He lucked out, okay? All the others were brutally martyred, executed for their faith. And you might say, well, so what? Lots of people die for their faith all the time, sometimes opposing views. It doesn't make it necessarily true. 
Well, the difference is that the disciples did not believe in the resurrection of Christ. They knew it firsthand. And so they knew whether it was true or it was a lie. And we didn't have one fanatic that was willing to just stick it out and die for his lie. We had 10 of the 11, and I'm sure John the 11th would have gladly done the same. And not only 11, it wasn't just that. He appeared, not just to them, but also to Mary and the other women. He appeared in 1 Corinthians, it says, to 500 people at once. And then he even appeared to one of his most vile critics, a guy named Saul, a murderous Jew that was hunting down Christians and appeared in such a way as after his resurrection to convert Paul, Saul to Paul, and he became his most avid advocate. And so he was converting even radical skeptics by his resurrection that had nothing to gain from buying into this lie. And so for me, for my own personal faith, these are convincing arguments that what the eyewitnesses wrote down must have actually happened. That God really must have raised Jesus from the dead as a historical real event. And if God raised him from the dead, he wouldn't have him go around continuing to spread lies. I think raising him from the dead vindicated Christ's claim and authorized and said, yes, I do send this person to you. I send Jesus, my son. And so he wouldn't send him around to spread all these lies about being the only way and being the son of God and being divine and that the God of Israel is the only true God. Thus, the only rational conclusion, the only logical conclusion based on the historical evidence and the eyewitness accounts is to believe that Jesus is worthy of our trust. That he's worthy to put first. Now, two resources I have for you today that really helped me grow in this line of support. This, one, this is one peg that supports my, my faith. There are many, but this is one. Two resources for you we're going to put on the screen. One of them is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, a classic. If you have not read The Case for Christ, you have to. Whether you are a Christian, a non-Christian, whatever, read it. They even make The Case for Christ for kids. They have a whole series for young people. So check that out. Um, It's an excellent, fun, easy-to-read book. Uh, And if you say, well, I'm not a reader, they make an audio. I've actually only listened to the audio book of The Case for Christ. It's that good. It's very entertaining. I can't recommend it highly enough. And then the second is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi, another excellent resource in supporting the historical reliability of the New Testament. Um, And he even in in Qureshi's book compares it to uh, the question of if the Quran and the Muslim faith is historically reliable and stands up to the same tests. And the answer is, well, he found Jesus. So, no. Uh, both of these are excellent audiobooks, fun reads, and available at your local library. So, check them out totally free. Can't recommend them highly enough. Now, what is important for us all to remember uh, is that these types of testimonies these types of reasoning and arguments will not save anybody. You cannot argue someone into the faith. You can't convince them with logic. Remember, Jesus didn't have an issue in our passage today, actually. The Jewish leaders, uh, they didn't have a, an information issue. They had all the information they needed. Their issue was in their hearts. They did not have a love for God. And so their hearts were hard. In fact, the most that these arguments can really do uh, is not to convince them, but just to, like, move stumbling blocks out of the way, off the path. So they can at least see the path. They can't make them go down the path, but they can at least see that it is a good path. 
know, it can begin to soften their hearts so that maybe at some point with God's help, they might stop refusing to come to him. But these arguments don't require faith necessarily to agree to. You could agree to the historical reliability of the transmission of the New Testament through the ages without any faith. You don't have to be a Christian. You just have to be a good historian or a good philosopher, a good archaeologist, a good debater, a good logical thinker. But taking that next step into faith is, a next, is another thing. And that comes with God's help when we stop refusing to come to the truth of who he is. And when you do that, when you come to faith and you come to him, what happens is that you get a whole new set of testimonies. Testimonies that do actually require faith to be of any value, really. And these are things like the internal guidance of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. That is a testimony. That is evidence that supports your faith. You know, the testimony of other believers speaking about how God is working in their lives. That is a testimony. That encourages your faith. The power of God to transform people's lives, totally, radically turn their lives around. Now, that's a testimony that takes faith sometimes. You know, God is his own evidence once you know him. And what you find is that when you, when you, when you get these new testimonies that were at one point not supportive, not convincing at all to non-believers, but then you give your heart to the Lord, they become the most convincing and those other arguments, philosophical arguments, logical arguments, become encouragements and supports, but not the most important. They become secondary. And these new testimonies that require faith become the most convincing. God is his own evidence. You know, in verses 37 and 38 today, it shows us that once you believe, you begin to see God at work in the world, you begin to hear his voice in your heart, and his word, his truth dwells in you, and you change once you stop refusing and you become deeper and deeper in love with him. And if you're kind of new to this whole Jesus thing, this whole church thing, I want you to know that that's just what you're invited into. You're invited into seeing God for who he truly is. His instructions for these non-believers is very simple. He just says, come to me. Just come. You know, he doesn't say, fix up your life. Change everything about who you are first. No, he doesn't say know all the arguments first, read all the books first. He doesn't say that. He just says, just come to me, and I'm going to do the rest. And I won't leave you the same. I'm going to change you. But just come to me. No, he, knows, he knows us so deeply, deeper than we know ourselves. He says to the, to the Pharisees there, the Jewish leaders, that I know you people. I know what is inside of you. And he knows what's, in each, what's inside each one of us. He knows every time we've sinned, every thought we've thought, and yet he still willingly went to the cross to make a way for us because he knows our true value, the value that only comes from him. And so if you're new to this and you want to take that step into that, know you're invited to that. And if you want to take that step for the first time today, what I want you to do during the last song today is just go to him. You know, in your heart, just open up and pray to him and go to him. He just says, just come to me. So just go to him, and he will do the rest. Not worried about that part. He'll take care of that. And then after you do that, if you want, I'm going to be over here with some follow-up people. And come talk to us and tell us what's going on in your heart. You know, maybe you're ready to jump in with both feet. Maybe you just want to take a little closer look, or you just have some questions. We want to hear about it. We want to talk with you. So if you, want, if you would, just come talk to us over here. 
And then for the rest of you that are already on that path, that already see God working in the world and you know his voice and his word lives in you, then this week you have homework. What I want you to do this week is to go tell someone why you believe in Jesus. And your story might be different than mine. It will definitely be different than mine. And your reasons might be different than mine. Maybe you're, you have a long story and it's got a lot of well-thought-out support or maybe it's just very short and simple. That's totally fine. It's totally okay. Or maybe but through sharing your story, it brings up some questions you need to figure out and ask to help encourage and give you confidence in, in your faith. Maybe for some of us, I think our, our ex- reasons for believing God are more rooted in our experiences with him. And for others, it's rooted more in logic and thinking and reasoning and study. And I think that ultimately we hope it grows to become some of both and that they support each other. Everyone, it's two different sides of the story and they help each other. You know, for today, I told you some of my logical reasons that strengthen my confidence in my faith. But really, my faith comes much more from a rooted position out of my experience of God's power and mercy and steadfast presence with me through my whole life. But that's a testimony for another day. There's a lot to our testimonies. So if you uh, are driving home today or you're talking to your kids or something, tell them why you believe in Jesus. What are your reasons? What are your reasons? And I think that when you... uh, Come to him. Your story is all yours at first. It's going to be unique. It's going to be different than mine, and that's okay. It's all yours at first. But then we share it with other people, and it might become part of their story. And your story might become a reason that supports their, their faith. And then I think collectively, we as a body of believers, the gospel, the good news of Christ, is our story. And we share that with one another. So maybe you're driving home in your car, or in your house group, or a stranger on the bus, whatever it is, I don't care. Share your reasons why you believe in Jesus. Or maybe write it down in a journal, or write it in a letter and send it to your grandma. She'll love it, okay? That's your homework. Add your testimony to the tools that God is using to show himself to the world and to show people their true glory uh, as his children. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Uh, And I thank you for who you are, what you've done in our lives, that you are the truth, you are the way. Uh, We ask that you would help us to come to you, to not resist you, but to know that you are a true, good, loving Father. And we praise your name. Amen.